Likewise, week after week, we uh, make sure that each preacher is praying for. So, I'm going to pray for Andrew. I'd ask you guys to pray with him. God, I pray for Andrew. God, I pray for his mind and his heart and his lips in this moment. God, I pray that his words would be your words, God. That what is coming out from him, God, will be convicting us. God, that it will move us closer to you, God. Closer to your joy, your satisfaction, God. That it would move us closer to the Spirit, God. That we would be walking in tune and in light of the Spirit as a body, as a church, as one. God, I pray that you would unify us and that you would build us, uh, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... I have been doing a series on the church, and I don't know if this is going to be the last one I do on the church or not, um, but I'm doing this on the church. Right now, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So last week, we talked about what the church was supposed to be, and the church was a gathering of people from all different walks of life, people who should not get along. People with different cultures, people with different ideas, people from different religious backgrounds. You had all these people come together in this church in Philippi, and it was this beautiful thing because they loved each other very, very dearly. And uh, in that particular episode, you had a man named Epaphroditus who was in the church of Philippi, but they sent Epaphroditus out to take care of Paul because Paul was in prison. And so... Um, Paul, they didn't want to leave him there alone. They wanted to take care of Paul. And so they sent Epaphroditus down. The problem is, is that Epaphroditus was a good soldier. Paul uh, defined him as a brother, a servant, and a soldier. But Epaphroditus began longing for his church back home. He began to get homesick because he loved his church so much. On top of that, Epaphroditus got deathly ill. So Paul because of his love for the church in Philippi, sends Epaphroditus back. And so we were looking at what the church was supposed to be, right? We are a gathering of people from all different walks of life whom God has made actual family. And we saw a beautiful example of what the family is supposed to look like um, in the story of Epaphroditus and Paul and the church at Philippi. It was a gigantic love fest. Um, and, you know, I saw after the sermon, people were hugging each other, stuff like that. I was like, okay, we got the sermon. <laughs> that is what the church is supposed to be. And if you only heard that sermon, you'd be like, sign me up right now. I want to be part of the church. Uh, but I am a realist. I'm a realist. What is a realist? A realist is not an overly negative person. Although sometimes people try to say that realists are overly negative people. Like, Tabby, you're a fellow realist. You know the slander. And say, are you being negative? No, I'm being real. A realist is not an overly negative person and not necessarily an overly positive person. If you're an overly positive person, sometimes you run the danger of being naive. If you're an overly negative person, sometimes you run the danger of being pessimistic. The Bible is a very real book. So while there are, there are instances and episodes of guys like Epaphroditus and the giant love fest that you see in Philippians, there's also this stuff. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I don't, I'm, I'm probably not going to end my church series on this note because... <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I just don't want to. Okay. 
2 Timothy chapter 4. Here, here's what's going on. You are the Apostle Paul. You grew up a Jewish person. All your life you were told that you were part of this master race of Jewish people who are going to rule the world. Jesus Christ comes and preaches a message about the entire planet Earth coming together in love as a family. Jesus convinces Paul through a long series of arguments that he's the Messiah. That's not true. <laughs> there is one conversation for about 48 seconds in which the risen Jesus appeared to Paul and says, What are you doing? Paul says, Oh, my bad. And then he becomes a Christian and he starts preaching. And we talked about this last week. The logical thing is that Paul would start talking to Jewish people because he's a Jewish expert. God actually sends Paul to go speak to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, the term Paul that we know him as is actually a Greek version of his name because his Aramaic name was Shaul or Saul. But he took on the name Paulus, the Greek side, because he was dealing with Gentile people who spoke Greek and didn't generally speak Aramaic. So even us calling him Paul is a reminder of his mission to the Gentile people. Okay? Because in those days you had a Greek name and then you had a, your Aramaic version of your name and you'd go back and forth because that's how you would do business. But Paul began to identify himself by his Greek name. Because that is how committed Paul was to pouring his whole heart and soul into the mission of reaching the Gentiles, which is all of us in the room except for one of us, Natalie, as far as I know. Okay? So here's Paul. He pours his whole heart and soul into all these churches. Second Timothy is the end of Paul's life. You got very famous um, passages in phones ringing. Is that your phone? Sorry. Oh, oh, don't worry. Uh, if it's you, Nobody ever calls me. The devil doesn't want you to hear this message. Okay. So 2 Timothy is the end of Paul's life. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a very famous phrase, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's a crown of righteousness that God is about to give to me. Paul knows that in this particular stint of imprisonment, he is not going to get out with his head on his shoulders. Church history tells us that Paul was very soon after this letter walked out and beheaded. Okay? So Paul knows that he's going to die. So we are getting the words, the last words of a man who has poured his whole heart and soul into the church. And so we saw last week that there were people that were sent to visit Paul and take care of Paul. What about this week? What about now Paul's final imprisonment? What is the church of Jesus Christ going to do for the Apostle Paul who's poured his whole soul into making sure that they got the gospel? Well, let's see. Here's, here's Paul's final words. <clears throat> so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this. And we're starting with verse... Um, 11. So there he is in jail, and in verse 11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him here with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Uh, now, this is very interesting. Luke, we know, is the Luke from, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. Now, 
Luke was Paul's traveling companion. He was his best friend. He basically run around with them. They'd get shipwrecked together. They had all that stuff. And Luke is the only one with Paul in jail. Now you figure this dude just spent his whole life in the ministry. He's about to die. What does he have to show for it? He's got one friend with him in prison. One. Where is everybody else? I mean, where is everybody? There are there no Christians around in this area? That's not true. We're going to see that in a second. Only Luke is left with him. But do you notice who he asks to be sent to him? Mark. Now many of you will probably not be familiar with this person, Mark. You are familiar with him, but you don't know his backstory. Mark is actually the one that wrote the Gospel of Mark, which many textual critics actually say is the earliest gospel ever written, or the first gospel written. Mark was originally a traveling companion of Paul. And what happened was, they were going on a mission, and it got hot and heavy, and Mark said, I can't take this anymore, so he bounced early. Well, when Paul got back from the mission, they had another mission to go to. And Mark says, hey, I'm going with you guys. And Paul says, hey, you're not. And Mark says, yes, I am. And Paul says, no, you're soft. You left early on the last mission. We can't have people like you. Go do something else. And then Barnabas, who was Paul's kind of like right hand, they were kind of equals, right? They were kind of like me and Brian. Barnabas shows up and says, yo, Paul, man. Now look, Barnabas is an encourager, right? That's what his name means. Barnabas actually means son of encouragement. So Barnabas goes up to Paul and says, yo, give the guy a second chance. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to give him a second chance. Barnabas says, are you kidding me? You were running around killing Christians and we gave you a second chance? I'm making this up. But this is, it says they disagreed sharply, okay? So I'm imagining the discussion. Don't go look. Where is this? Where is this conversation? So are you kidding me? You kill all these people? We let you into the Christian church and now you're going to... And Paul's saying, look, I'm not saying the guy's not a Christian. I'm just saying that he's not built for this type of ministry, man. Let him go do something else. So Paul and Barnabas actually split over this fight about John Mark. Barnabas says, yo, I'm rolling with John Mark, and you can go wherever you want. So, so Paul, in typical apostolic fashion, says, roger that. He pieces out Barnabas, collects this guy named Timothy, and he went on with his mission. What happened to Mark? Well, John Mark ended up getting hooked up with this guy named Peter. You know who Peter is. And so John Mark rolled with Peter, and Peter basically narrated him the gospel of Mark. Okay? So Paul sending this guy off on his ministry was actually a good thing, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have the gospel of Mark. All right? But at the time, there was a heavy conflict about Mark. Now, here's Pete Paul at the end of his life. And look, look who he calls for. He says, send, get Mark and bring him with you. So remember, Timothy was the one that replaced Mark in the ministry. And Paul says, make sure when you come along, I'm going to die. This is the last time I'm going to see you. If you make it in time, make sure you bring Mark. And look what he says about Mark. He is very useful to me in ministry. Now, isn't that interesting? Years earlier, Paul says, this guy can't come with us. What's the implication? He'll be useless in the ministry, in this type of ministry. That's the implication. He didn't say that. But now at the end of Paul's life, Paul is saying, hey, make sure you bring Mark along. 
because he's useful in ministry. Now, here's how people usually interpret that. They go, see, Paul was mean. He was mean to John Mark at first, but now in his old age, he has learned to be nice. You see, he grew up. Now he sees some value in Mark. Other people would say, well, maybe Mark grew up, and now he no longer uh, is cowardly and fearful, and now he has some longevity in ministry. Which one is true? Uh, honestly, probably both are true. It probably took Paul a while to see the value in ministers who were not as hardcore and diehard as he was. But on, as Paul was growing, Mark was probably growing as well, and he probably got some endurance and courage with him. Remember, if you went and visited a prisoner, you marked yourself as somebody who could potentially be harassed by the police. It was an extremely dangerous thing to do. So when Paul says, bring Mark, he's very useful to me in ministry, he is recognizing that Mark has grown up. He is also changing his mind about Mark in some sense. And what does this tell us about the church? Here's what this tells us about the church. If you have a conflict with someone, or if somebody was a certain type of person in the past, it does not negate the fact that God might have to grow you and that other person to where in the future you guys can't work together. Because look what Paul says. He says he's useful to me for ministry. Meaning they probably had ministered prior to that, even after the conflict, where Mark was able to, quote, prove himself to Paul, even though we know that you don't prove yourself to anybody. But you see the point. Usually, here's what happens in ministry. Somebody screws up, or somebody is a certain way at one point in time, and that's all they are for the rest of their life, in your mind. you got these crazy standards of what ministry is. You know, this is one of the downfalls of self. The best thing about a person is usually the worst thing about a person. You guys are hardcore operators. You're brave. People threaten your lives. You get sent to court cases and blah, we're in the media. You just do all this incredible stuff. And then you look at somebody who's not doing a lot of ministry, you're like, man, he can't roll with us. He can't hang with us. Well, maybe that person needs to grow and maybe you need to grow. And maybe just because somebody doesn't minister as hardcore as you are, it doesn't mean they're not a useful minister. Just because they can't teach like you doesn't mean they're not a useful teacher. Just because they can't do X or Y thing as good as you doesn't mean they're not useful. And here's the other side. Some of you might be a mark. You might think to yourself, I'm not as good as a teacher, or I don't have the endurance, or I don't have the bravery to go out and stand in front of Planned Parenthood. I'm terrible. I'm nothing. Blah, blah, blah. You get this crazy complex because you're not as elite as other people. Well, look. Mark didn't do something as glamorous as going overseas like Paul did getting shipwrecked, having all these crazy miracles that Paul had. But Mark got us the gospel of Mark, which most textual commentators say that Matthew and Luke used as the basis for writing their gospels. So Mark got us not only Mark, but a bunch of Matthew and a bunch of Luke. That's three-fourths of the gospels that you know about Jesus Christ. This throwaway guy who was not a hardcore minister, and I'm sure as he's walking with Peter, taking notes about Jesus' life, the Gospel of Mark is a very quick Gospel, by the way. It's the shortest one. I'm sure he's thinking to himself, oh, this is not really that significant. I failed, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, God had an amazing ministry from him. 
I mean, think this through. Who replaced Mark? Timothy. How many books has Timothy written in the Bible? Zero. We have no idea what Timothy did. I'm sure he did awesome stuff. But he didn't make the Bible. Who made the Bible? The failure, not hardcore, throwaway minister. You see how God works? Here's another thing. If you try out for, this is very important, if you try out for a certain type of ministry, and it becomes clear from the community and the leaders in the community that that's just not your ministry, it does not mean that you're a failure. It simply means that that's not your area of ministry. And it means that God has something else incredible for you to do. You see this all the time in teaching. Teaching is an upfront kind of thing. And so everybody wants to be a teacher. And any good teacher will say, well, go for it. Give it a shot. Let's see what you got. Well, if you don't have it, you don't have it. It doesn't mean that, that you're less than. It just means that that's not specifically your gift. Okay? So this is what happens. Paul says, man, he is useful to me. And at the end of my life, I know this is the end of my last life, and the last people I want to see is John Mark, this guy I had all this conflict about and all the rest of it. I mean, think about that. Timothy's like, yo, I'm loading up. I'm going to see Paul. John Mark's like, tell him I said hi. And Timothy says, tell him yourself. You're going along. Ah, man, I don't know. He said, come along. Can you imagine how that must have made John Mark feel? Well, I mean, he didn't ask for Barnabas. Now, most speculation is that Barnabas is dead by this time, probably. Okay? Now, so there's John Mark. So this is the church. Different gifts. God's going to use us all differently. And yes, you may have very sharp disagreements. But here's one of the things I'll say. We need to treat the people that we're having disagreements with as if we only have one week to, to live. See, Paul knew he basically had one week to live. So was, I want to see John Mark. All those people that you're having conflicts with, you got... You got, you got unease about that you're upset as far as it rests with you you need to have the mentality that you only have one week to live and if you had one week to live and if they only had one week to live I guarantee you you would be very different about that person you have conflict with than otherwise you know it's like we were talking about with the honor post and people were like yo did somebody die because it's human nature to wait until somebody's dying or dead to say the real things in your heart about them don't do that. Don't wait till you're dying, till you have a literal week left to go and reconcile with that person or tell them that they're valuable. All right. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus was one of uh, Paul's main guys, and he rolled with Paul in the ministry. He sends him off to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Churras, also the books, and above all the parchments. Paul wants to keep writing. He wants to keep ministering. Paul knows that he's going to die. You're like, Paul, aren't you? I mean, you're going to die, man. What, what's the point? He says, send the parchments. Because on the human level, I don't know the exact date of my death, and I want to keep working until the very end. I want to keep ministering until the very end. You know, somebody told me one time, he goes, look, the Bible's not inspired. They're just regular personal letters. I mean, what spiritual good can you get out of verse 13? Paul wants his cloak and his parchments. Well, one, he wants his cloak because he's in a dungeon, and it's cold. It's a miserable existence. And so what this tells us is that Paul was very acclimated to suffering, 
But if there's something that can ease your pain during suffering, take it. Don't sit there and be a super Christian and go, oh, I'm supposed to suffer. You got Christians like that on the other side. Yes, some Christians that all they want to do is be comfortable all the time. Adjust my pills properly. That's me. Adjust my pills. I don't like being on this bed. I'm watching my show. My pills got to be perfect. That's me type of Christian. Then you got other types of Christians who they don't want to be comfortable at all. They want to suffer. Because they think if they're suffering, it's spiritual. Paul's like, I'm cold. Get me my cloak, please. I want my cloak. And he also wants his parchments. Because he wants to write. He had, I'll think this through. We might have had other books in the New Testament if Paul was able to keep his head long enough. He wanted parchment so that he could write and send uh, letters out to other churches. Now the commentators say, you know, he also asked for books. What books were these? All commentators, what do you think the commentators said the books were? Commentaries. <laughs> okay, commentaries on the Bible. Okay, um, and I actually agree with that. Paul was a Jew and he loved his Old Testament, so um, Paul wanted books about the Bible. To the very end of Paul's life, he was studying the Bible and he had intentions of writing and instructing other people. What does this tell us? If the Apostle Paul, who got divine inspiration to put books into the Bible, 13 of them, wanted to continue to study, what about you? How many books of the Bible have you written? You good? Are you good with your Bible knowledge? Or do you want more? Do you want to keep doing it? Do you want to keep reading? Do you want to keep studying? This gives us insight into Paul's mindset. Paul already told Timothy, I'm not going to make it out of this cycle of imprisonment. But I want my books. I want to write. You do not become a person like that all of a sudden out of nowhere. You become a person like that in the mundane grind of everyday life. And what you practice now in the last slice of your life is what you're going to be. It is extremely rare that you're going to all of a sudden be this randomly different person when the heat is on, when the pressure's on, and when your life is about to be over. If you want to be this type of person when you die, you need to be this type of person as you're living. Especially if you want to be a leader in the church. You better be biblically literate. I mean, get your cloak, get your pillow set up properly, whatever, but you better make sure that you're biblically literate and that you got some study or something lesson ready to teach people. Because that was Paul. And here's the other thing. If you, what if your gift is helps? What if you have a gift of helps? And you'd be at the very end of your life still helping people. You see, it doesn't just need to be the teachers now. What about the other gifts? Somebody tell me the other gift of the Spirit. Administration. Administration. Okay? I don't know how Paul's going to do that in jail. But I'm sure, well, look, Joseph did that in jail, didn't he? And he rose and became basically the manager of the prison cell. Joseph, now that I think about it, had the gift of administration. There's millions of things you can do. Whatever God has gifted you with doing it, though, continuously exercise it in whatever context you're in. Now, watch verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's how Paul said it. I know that. Paul's my guy. That's how he said it. The Lord will pay him. All right, who's Alexander Thomas Smith? Now, this is very interesting. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul named two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, 
I have handed them over to Satan so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. Basically what happened is, there, is a man, there are two men who are preaching a different gospel. They are preaching a different message. And they were spreading it throughout the churches. And so Paul basically excommunicated him. He says, okay, you're out of the community. Because let me explain something to you. The gospel is what defines the community of the church. This is very important. Remember we talked about this last week. We said the, 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 in the beginning of Genesis, mankind is full of violence, and so God floods the earth. But then we started getting along in Genesis 11. Y'all remember that? We were getting along. Did God, was God cool with that? No. You know why? Because we were getting along with a false message, a false gospel of humanism and paganism. And so what God did was he spread us out because he said, the unity is fine, but if you're not unified under the right message, see you later. So the Christian church, yes, different races, different backgrounds, all that's a beautiful thing, but it is the message of the gospel that defines what the Christian community is. It's not this la-di-da, kumbaya, we're all together and all the rest of it, and that's what makes us us. The thing that primarily makes us a community is the gospel message. So, this guy, Alexander, gets kicked out of the fellowship. Now, a lot of commentators say, and I agree, doesn't mean anything, but I agree. Verse 14 in 2 Timothy is speaking of that Alexander. And so what happens is that Alexander comes back with a vengeance and he does great harm to Paul. He says, Alexander... The coppersmith did me great harm. Essentially, the story goes is that Alexander got excommunicated, Paul got brought up to trial, and Alexander, in a moment of weakness, went after Paul and did him great harm. He heard him. That's what it says. We don't know exactly how Alexander heard him, but he did. And this is what happens. You know, you, you have to make tough decisions sometimes as leaders, and people come after you. Now, I want to be very, 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 very careful here and extremely nuanced. Because, as we will see in a second, Paul responds by saying, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And the, and the idea is, this guy is going to be in trouble with God when this is all over. Why? Beware of him yourself, because he strongly, what? Opposed our message. Paul is not primarily upset at Alexander for doing him great harm. The only reason he mentioned Alexander doing great harm to him was to warn Timothy to stay away from him. The real issue that Paul had with Alexander was not personal. It was what? He opposed our message, which is the gospel. So this is important. Even people who are excommunicated from the church, who talk junk or whatever, are not Alexander the Coppersmith. You're Alexander the Coppersmith if, when you leave, you start going and attacking the gospel. We don't have anybody like that ever in the history of South 53. We've had people that have been excommunicated, and sure, they talk here and there, but they never did this stuff. You see what I'm saying? It has to be very, very nuanced. Alexander's a guy, most likely got excommunicated from the church, and then he began to oppose the gospel. And it's from that perspective where Paul is saying, okay, now you're taking your bitterness, and now you're trying to keep other people from getting saved. Not from going to my church, 
from getting saved. Alexander wasn't saying, that church sucks, go to this church. That's not what he was doing. What he was saying is, the gospel message itself is false. Everybody see the difference there? Okay. So, that type of person, Paul says, God's going to repay you according to your deeds, man. You're, you're going to be in trouble with God. Because this is not you're opposing Paul or you're opposing Timothy. You're opposing the gospel, which is the only thing that can save the souls of human beings. Paul also makes sure that he doesn't curse him. And he also makes sure that he doesn't go into great detail about the things that Alexander did to him. Which is why there's a million theories about what Alexander did to him. Paul doesn't feel the need to go into the gory details because he knows this letter is probably, even though it's written specifically to Timothy, he knows it's probably going to get read publicly at some level. He doesn't go into the gory details about all the horrible things Alexander did to him. All he says was, Alexander did me great harm. This is very, very important. Somebody from the church is upset, they're mad, they're bitter, or whatever. Be very careful about going into the gory details of all the things they personally did to you. Be careful. Because if Alexander, an enemy of the gospel, Paul doesn't even do that to him. How dare we do that to somebody for going after us personally? We couldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. What is this? This is realism. This is realism. Why would Paul need to warn? This is one of the reasons, by the way, people think that Alexander was a guy that was originally part of the church. Why would Paul have to warn Timothy, beware of this guy? Probably because Timothy knew him and they had a good relationship prior, so he needed to be warned. This guy's going to flip on you because he's an enemy of the gospel. Okay, now watch this. At my first defense, verse 16, so you got... You got Alexander, an ex-church member who flipped and went crazy, hates the gospel. Paul's response is, God's going to deal with that guy. Look at verse 16. At my first defense. Now, here's what happened. They bring him into court, and uh, they had this thing in Latin called the primo actio. And that was basically your first statement of defense. And if you had enough witnesses that could come together and speak on your behalf, many times they would throw the case out and you wouldn't get to the second level of uh, a trial. Okay, does that make sense? So if you had enough witnesses doing your first defense, the judge would say, I'm not going to go and waste Roman money and Roman time on persecuting this guy. He's got a bunch of people speaking on his behalf. Okay? So that's what Paul is talking about at my first defense. Now listen to this. No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Didn't he just mention up earlier that Luke was with him? Even Luke, his partner in crime, the guy that was shipwrecked with him and all the rest of it, even Luke said, man, I can't stand and defend you. The heat is too hot. People were starting to read, Paul's not going to get out of this. These dudes really want to kill Paul. On top of that, Paul should have had hundreds of friends who would be willing to stand for him. I remember uh, Brian had his court date, and I remember we all had Planned Parenthood. And uh, I remember Jeremy, and, and we left early, Planned Parenthood, and ran down to the court, got in there just in time to see Brian on the stand, 
And Brian was there in the stand. I was like, yeah, that's Brian Raw. I was like, should I send you my you know, energy? I'm like, yeah, look at him going, go after that horrible lawyer, the prosecutor, right? And there's like a row of cell people that just gangsters, just, yeah, we're for Brian. And then Jeremy strolled up there and he outsmarted the prosecutor. He did. <laughs> he did really good. I was like, yeah, Jeremy, yeah. I wanted to stand up there and get all ethnic on him. Yeah. I did. I didn't get ethnic because I want to. But man, that, that was like one of the most beautiful moments of all time, wasn't it? And all these people come together for the sake of this one guy. That's who the church is supposed to be. But with Paul, at the end of his life, after he's poured his entire heart and soul into ministry, he's like, you know what? My boys are going to be there. They're going to be there. And they said, all right, here are the witnesses for the defendant. And he looks around, and there's nobody. He's like, well, maybe they're late. Give them 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Maybe Luke. Luke's going to come. It's, he got the wrong courthouse. And it finally dawns on him that none of the people that he has poured his entire life into serving, willing to die for them, beaten for them, stoned almost to death for them, shipwrecked for them, all these people he's poured his entire life into, and nobody stands beside him, and he says, all what deserted me. Now, when Alexander did him harm, Paul says, God's going to deal with that guy. How does Paul respond when his friends deserted him in the hour of his greatest need? I'm the righteous apostle, Paul. I did everything I possibly could. I poured my whole soul into these people, and they abandoned me when the chips were down. See, many of us, in this room would have used this moment of desertion to throw the most giant, self-righteous pity party of all time. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? And nobody would be able to blame you. Nobody would, be, would say to you, oh, yeah, I mean, you should keep quiet about that. Paul does not take that opportunity. He says, everybody deserted me. Why? Because Paul is real. He felt deserted. He was deserted. He's not playing super Christian. He's a human being. They deserted me. And what does he say? May it not be charged against them. Want to know how not to be a bitter person? Decide in your heart that if your, your friends are not Alexander that you're just going to chalk it up to human weakness. You see the difference? This was a personal affront. This was a personal insult. This was a personal hurt. And Paul says, man, if it's about me personally, God don't hold it against them. Alexander was against the gospel. And thankfully, I don't think we have any ex-friends or ex-church members who are going up against the gospel. Is the person who hurt you, is the person who deserted you, I mean, some of you are in different types of prisons, right? You're in a prison of loneliness. 
You know, you're, you're lonely, and some people are very popular, you know, they can't bat people off of them enough. And there are other you who are just lonely and desperate to be with other people. And the Lord knows whether or not you've actually been deserted. But let's say that you have. You know, you can feel deserted and not be deserted, right? Does that make sense? But let's say that you have. Is this your attitude? May it not be charged against them. Now notice, I want you to notice a couple things. When Paul says may it not be charged against them, that means that they did something wrong. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say that. You know, Brian came and dropped off my, uh, my grump. Chloe bought me a grunk. I didn't say, Chloe, may this not be charged against you. That she did something good. Doesn't make any sense. The only reason you say, may it not be charged against them, is if they did something wrong to you. And many of us don't understand this concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean that the other person did not wrong you. Many times we think like this. We think if we let the person off the hook, what we're saying is it wasn't bad. No, the reason they're on the hook is because they did something bad. You let them off because you recognize they did something bad, but you're not going to hold the charge against them. It doesn't even mention that these people apologize to Paul. All he says is, may it not be charged against them, exclamation point. Meaning, in the Greek, it was so emphatic that in the English, we added an exclamation point. Why? Because this was the true state of Paul's heart. When it finally dawned on him that all of his friends had deserted him and nobody was going to speak for him, what began to really burn in his heart was, man, these guys are not spiritually where they need to be. God, don't hold it against them. That was the true intention of his heart. This wasn't him being super apostle Paul. And I got to say this to Timothy. Remember, this is a personal letter to Timothy. This is his real feelings and thoughts. He really did not want that held against them. There is a difference between your friends just being weak human beings with their own issues and their own sins and their own limitations who fail you. Maybe even at times of your greatest times of need, your friends, your Christian friends, your church friends, well-meaning as they be, may fail you. Because no matter how amazing it is, the things that we're all doing together in the power of the Holy Spirit, you have got to recognize that you still have feet of clay. And the question is, are you so important that in the moment that you get failed and betrayed and deserted, that God now should hold it against them? You know what's probably going on in Paul's mind? It's Christ. Isn't that true? I mean, wasn't Jesus deserted in his greatest hour of need? Are you greater than Jesus? You're greater than Jesus? Did, did, did Jesus hold it against Peter? I mean, you remember this in, in the uh, garden. Peter's like, I'm going to go to prison for you. Paul's like, Jesus like, you ain't going to do no such thing. You're going to deny me three times, actually. But don't worry about it. I've already prayed for you. See, this is how you know whether or not you're growing in grace. When people sin against you, or when you know they're going to sin against you even before they do, 
Is your first instinct, I got to pray for them. Because them sinning against me might discourage them so much that they lose the faith. And I don't want that to happen, so I'm going to pray for them. Is that your attitude toward the people who failed you? You're worried about them because of what it says about their spiritual condition? If your friends, think this through, if the people who truly love you fail you and abandon you, what does it tell you about their spiritual condition? It tells you that they're not as far along as they should be. That's what it means. Because they loved you. And for some reason, they don't have the spiritual resources to be there for you. That means that they're fighting within themselves to be better than who they are, and they lost. You know what we do? When some people fail us, we say, you never loved me. That's not true. Don't say they never loved you. People hurt you, say, you never loved me. They deserted you. Oh, that means you never loved me. I just discovered something about you. I didn't know this about you. No, it just means that they're weak and they need your prayer most of all. You most of all. If they desert you, there are 8 billion people on this planet right now. And of all the billions of people on the planet that need, that they need your prayer, it's you most of all who should be praying for them. You being deserted and betrayed by your friends is God telling you, you got to pray for that person. You're like, what are you talking about? Do you remember the book of Job? Job was in a horrible situation, and his friends showed up. They did good for seven days. They sat there in the dirt with him. And they said, man, Job, this is terrible. They cried with him. Excellent. Golden star. And then for the rest of the book, they proceeded to tell Job, Job, you did something wrong. It's your fault that your kids are dead and that you lost everything. I'm sure your kids did some secret hidden sin. I mean, I have no idea. But it must have been like that. And you know what God said at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the book? God showed up to the other friends, and he said, you guys are completely wrong. And you dissed this boy in the midst of the greatest trial of his life. And then God says, I'm going to tell Job to pray for you. And then I'll forgive you. And God had Job pray for his traitorous friends. And then God forgave them. See? This is the pattern. You get betrayed, you're the one that should be praying for the person. Mostly. Deeply from your heart. Because you know why? If you don't pray for your friend who deserts you, you are deserting your friend. If you don't pray for the friend who is deserting you, you are deserting your friend. Because you're leaving them in a spiritual condition that is going to destroy them. Job prayed for his deserting friends. Jesus prayed for his deserting friends. And now Paul prayed emphatically, exclamation point, bold, underlined, from his heart for his deserting friends. This is the real church of Jesus Christ. You're going to end up in prison the prison of loneliness, prison of depression, prison of whatever. And sometimes the church is going to be who we really are and send you an Epaphroditus and pray like crazy for you and come around you and support you and pick you up. And other times, you're going to be in prison and you're going to be all alone by yourself and they're going to desert you. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That will happen to you. Both of them will happen. Most likely. 
And what will you do? How did Paul get the love in his heart to be able to do this? I'm going to explain to you how Paul did that, and then we're going to get out of here. Look what Paul says. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul had a true, authentic walk with Jesus Christ. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Look, it would be much easier for you to forgive your deserting friends if you could feel the Lord with you, wouldn't it? And if you knew without a shadow of a doubt, the Lord is with me. It's much easier to forgive those other people. You see, this is what I said earlier. What you develop in the mundane, everyday, boring pattern of life is what's going to happen when the heat is on. Paul developed an actual, true, personal relationship with Christ. This is so important. Listen to me. Community is important. Bible study is important. Prayer meeting, important. Going out the park together, important. Prayer week, important. I hope you have an authentic, genuine solitary walk with Jesus. Because what's going to happen when you go through a dry spell of a month and there is no prayer week and people aren't trying to hang out with you or respond to your text messages or you see a little thing on Facebook where it says that they saw your message and still not responding to you. Ah. Do you have an authentic walk with Jesus you get undone by social media? Think about it. If you get undone by social media... You get undone because you're constantly checking. She saw. She saw my message. She saw my message five minutes ago. She's not responding to me. And you become obsessed about that? What does that tell you about your personal walk with the Lord? This is a gift to you that God allows those people not to respond to you. So that it's Jesus Christ saying to you, Hello? 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 I'm here. You want to talk or what? Because he knows many of you. You don't know how you're going to leave this world. You think you're going to die in the middle of a prayer week? Paul, as much as he loved Christian community, and as he spoke, there's nobody that spoke about Christian community more than the Apostle Paul did. All the one another passages, the majority of them, you realize there's more love one another type passages out of the pen of the Apostle Paul than the mouth of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He loved community. But he also created a walk with Jesus such that when all of his friends deserted them, he heard the familiar voice of Jesus. And he said, look, the Lord what, stood by me. Look at verse 16. No one came to stand by me. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. He's looking around. Ten minutes goes by. Thirty minutes goes by. And Jesus, he senses Jesus say to him, Paul, nobody's coming, man. It's just me and you, Paul. He heard that. The Lord stood by me. The Lord said, I'm not going to say anything to these people to defend you, but I'm here. And I'm going to strengthen you. You know, the, you, you, you know the strength that I had when I stood by Pilate by myself with nobody to defend me? I'm going to give you that. Do you know what you're saying when you're singing Jesus is alive? Same Jesus who stood by Pilate Stood by Paul, stand by you. He is actually alive. Literally alive. He'll stand by you. He'll strengthen you. 
the strength that he used to endure his moments of desertion, he will give to you. He gave it to Paul. And Paul is your servant. So if he gave that to your servant, how much is he going to give to you? Did you know that? Paul told Ephesians, God sent me to be your servant for your glory, you Gentiles. He's going to do that for you. But I hope you're cultivating a personal walk with Jesus so that you can hear him when he's talking to you. You got so many people that you're talking to that when Jesus is talking, his voice gets drowned out. Because your, 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 your spiritual antenna is tuned to so many other people. So, the first thing, how do you not remain bitter at your friends for deserting you? How do you pray with them from the heart? One, the Lord stood by you. Recognize the Lord is by you. Two, be strengthened by the Lord. And watch this. He strengthened me so that I would feel better about being deserted. Is that what Paul said? Look at the text. No. He strengthened me so that what? Through me the message might be fully proclaimed and what? All the Gentiles might hear it. What was his problem with Alexander the coppersmith? Ultimately, he's against the message. What did Jesus strengthen Paul for when he was deserted? So I could speak the message. You want to know how not to be bitter? Stop being so you-centered and be message-centered, please. The reason we're so bitter is because we are self-centered people and we are not centered on the message. Nobody is going to be able to stop the message of Jesus Christ. Like they came after Brian. And you know what ended up happening? The gospel was preached in the courtroom. They kept talking about blood babies and Jesus. They played the video of, of Brian preaching the gospel. We, you know, he messaged me one time. He's like, yo, son, we're in China. They printed the story in China. We're in China. If your friends desert you, that does literally zero to the gospel message. How many people have you told the gospel this week, Andrew? You just don't worry about your personal issues. I don't say your personal issues aren't important. Paul talked about them. That means they're important. What I'm saying is, what is most important to you is the message of the gospel and the mission that Jesus has sent you on more important to you than even your own personal well-being physically or emotionally. That's how you stop being a bitter person. Get on a train that is always moving. You know, I used to live in New York City. And you, you had to get to where you got to at a certain time, but you were at the mercy of the train. <laughs> if the train didn't go, or if something happened to the train, you were late, and people at work or school, they didn't care. You're late. So one of the most frustrating things of all time is if you get on a train that gets stopped, it's frustrating. The only train that God has in this universe that is always going to go is the message of the gospel. Your personal life, you're going to have little pit stops. You're going to have breakdowns. The, 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 the tracks of your personal life are going to go all over the place and stop. So if you're riding that train, you, you have guaranteed bitterness for yourself. But if you're riding the train of the message of the gospel going out to the nations, you will never be a bitter person if that's the train you're on. If you center your whole soul on that, you will not be a bitter person. 
I'm not saying you won't care that people won't message you on Facebook. I'm a realist. You're going to care. When I'm, and you should. They're your brothers. They should talk to you. What I'm saying is, it is not going to be ultimate. You know what you'll do? You're going to be like, well, you know what? I'm going to well, put some gospel on my Facebook. And everybody's going to see it, whether they respond to it or not. That's, that's, how, you, that's how you get on the train. Paul says, my and Lois. He says, all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul had an understanding of his personal mission. Because Jesus told him, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. That's your mission. Do you know what your personal job is in this whole kingdom of God thing? I don't know. Have you asked the Lord? Have you asked the Lord to show you? Are you actively pursuing that? So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Meaning his first uh, defense, even though it didn't go as perfectly as he planned it, it went okay. Now look at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me what? Safely into his heavenly kingdom. Mm. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. People go, this is one of those Bible contradictions. Because earlier, uh, you just said that Paul said that he was going to get his head chopped off. And you just told me a week later he got his head chopped off. So what does Paul mean? The Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Here's another way for you not to be a horribly bitter individual. One, get on the right train. Two, realize where your train is going. Where is he going? You're going into the heavenly kingdom. Paul did not define safety as I will get to keep my head on my shoulders. Jesus talked about this in the Gospels. Jesus says, some of you, they will kill, but not one hair on your head will perish. Subhanallah. What does that mean? I mean, he'll kill you, but not one head of your hair will perish. Because ultimate perishing is the second death. Some of you don't know Jesus. Some of you are not walking with Jesus Christ. And if you leave this world, you will experience death in the ultimate, real, and true sense. Because you will die forever. Some of you right now are completely unsafe. You see, Paul says, the Lord will rescue me and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In Paul's mind, safety was being in the center of God's will in the hand of Jesus Christ. That's what safety meant for Paul. It did not mean that he would not get his head chopped off. Many of you think safety means that you have a clear bill of health, you don't have cancer, your health is okay, your heart is good, blah, 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 you think you're safe, you're out of a bad neighborhood, you drive the speed limit, you're safe. You're not safe. You're only safe if you're in the hands of Jesus Christ. And you're only in the hands of Jesus Christ if you trust in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And you repent and start following him. That's the only way you're safe. Otherwise, you are in clear and present danger. Paul had an understanding that his life was set. I was watching this horrible video. ISIS has just basically been defeated in Iraq, and now they're rounding up all these ex-ISIS soldiers. And all these brave people who were running around five months ago, shooting women and children, setting people on all these hardcore people who are screaming and crying for their lives. That is not how, with God's help, we're going to die. 
I believe that when it's time for us to leave this earth, no matter what the circumstances are, we will receive dying grace. That we will die safely. You hear what I said? You're going to die safely as a Christian. Because you're going to be in the arms of Christ. The same Christ, look at this, the same Christ who stood by him, strengthened him, empowered him to preach the gospel, is the same Lord who rescues him, verse 18, and the Lord himself will personally bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see how Christ-centered Paul is? The Lord will do all these things for me in a couple verses. I'll say it again. The Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. The Lord gave me the strength to proclaim the message. The Lord rescued me. The Lord will continue to rescue me and bring me safely into his kingdom. That was the relationship Paul had with Jesus Christ. And notice, he says, heavenly kingdom. Now look, the ultimate goal of the people of God is that we're going to rule a renewed universe with Jesus Christ. We know that. So floating around in heaven is not the ultimate goal. However, being in heaven is better than being on earth. Paul said this multiple times. He said in Philippians, he said in 1 Corinthians. Do you have that perspective? Paul said, man, I am torn between doing great ministry and leaving right now and being with Jesus. We don't talk about the heavenly hope a lot. We should. One of these days, we're going to be called up into the heavenly kingdom. We're going to be with God in heaven forever, and nothing will be able to touch us. Now, how does Paul end it? He ends it with, then I'll be able to go to heaven, and everything will be fine. No, what does he end it with? To him be the glory forever and ever. The thing is ultimately about the glory of Christ. Paul, at the very, very end of his life, everything was about the gospel going to the Gentiles, that's me and you, and the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. If you are singular on those things, you will never, ever stumble. You'll never stumble into bitterness. You'll never stumble into self-pity. And realistically, you will feel the hurt of all this stuff. Can't you feel that in verse 16? No one came to stand by me. All deserted me. He felt that pain. I'm a realist. You're going to feel the pain. What I'm saying is you're going to be centered. You're not going to be doing this thing all over the place. Loving people one day. You love them. They respond to all your messages. Then they ignore you. Bam! You never love me. Okay? You're going to be stable, healthy people until the day you die. But this is the church of Jesus Christ. Paul ended up getting walked off into the, uh, into the, uh, the woods and they chopped off his head and... and uh, and the Lord brought him safely into the heavenly kingdom. Without his head on his shoulders. But he'll get it back in the resurrection. All right. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the church. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray that we would take this seriously, God. I pray that we would cultivate our walk with you to where we could hear your voice. God, I pray that we would love you love your gospel, love the Gentiles around us and bring them into the covenant, God. God, I pray that we would be singular about the message. God, I pray that we would continuously have the message on our lips and, and spread it far and wide.
God, I pray that you would bring us closer than we've ever been before and that we would visit the prisoners, whatever prisons that they're in, God, whether it's loneliness, depression, whatever it is, God, but I pray, God, that above all, that we would be closer to you and that we would be going for your voice first and that we would be looking for you to stand for us, God. God, I pray for soft hearts to all those who have hurt us. God, I pray if we have been those who have deserted our friends, God, I pray for uh, forgiveness and compassion on the offended party side. And I pray for boldness on those who, who failed their friends, God, to ask for forgiveness. God, I pray for an understanding of human weakness in all of us and for us to be quick to love each other from the heart with understanding and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys want to join us in worship? Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.